In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Jordan Gall and I discuss LinkedIn outreach, how to divide time between new features and fixing bugs, and we answer more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 452. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob, and today with Jordan, we're going to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. Welcome to the show. Each week, we talk about building startups in an organic, sustainable fashion that allows you to build yourself a better life and a better lifestyle, maintain freedom, purpose, and healthy relationships. Some weeks, we talk through tactics. Other weeks, we do interviews, we have founder hot seats, and some weeks, we answer your questions. And this week, I was very pleased to be able to sit down with Jordan Gall and answer some listener questions. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Jordan, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks very much for having me, Rob. It's uh, yeah, post-4th of July Q&A session. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to have you. So folks will know you from Bootstrapped Web and you run a cart hook. And before we dive into the questions, I'm curious what your take is on kind of where you've come from and where you are with cart hook. Because cart hook is approaching 30 employees. It's a, a fast growing SaaS app. And, you know, when you look back a few years ago, I think when you and I first started talking I angel invested in Cardhook, for those who don't know. I think you were at like 5K MRR. I was going to say way back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it was really early. Like what, what is that like? Like, do you pinch yourself? Is it surreal? Did you, did you dream of one day having a SaaS app with 30 people? I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine what that feels like. I think it's the opposite for me that before this, the struggle was like the nightmare. And this is like, oh, this is where I've always supposed to be. <laughs> that's That's kind of how it feels to me. Like this was the plan and I always like telegraphed in my mind like this is how it's going to feel like when it's the way it's supposed to be and before that was just this annoying nightmare to go through to finally be like there we go this this is how it's supposed to feel yeah it's such a trip huh that like as you go through it it's these these small changes and you I remember thinking wow if I had a team of 10 or whatever it would just be this huge thing and it would be so bizarre and it would be amazing and and then when we got there, it was like, this just feels normal now because you didn't go from zero to 10. I didn't go from working alone to having 10 people. We just hired them one at a time and you just built the team. Does is, is it feel the same way to get, get to where you are? Yes, it feels incremental. In, in hindsight, it was fast, right? So we went from four people to uh, 24 and we're hiring a few now. That happened over the span of two years. And I think that's that's pretty fast, four to 24 in two years, but it was incremental along the way. You know, weeks go by, months go by, new people get added. We have that uh, additional element of having two offices, one in Portland, one in Slovenia. So I would feel it in Portland when you hire an employee, all of a sudden you have someone new in your day-to-day life. But we only have 11 people in Portland. And so Slovenia, whenever I go back, I go back every, call it four months, and so every time I go back, I have two or three pe- new people to meet. <laughs> so, so that was more abrupt changes on the Slovenia side. And the Portland growth felt more you know, natural, just one by one. And your role as CEO, I know in the early days, you, you do everything. You, know, you do anything that, that is falling through the cracks, basically. What's your role like today with that many people? What do you consider your, like, what are your top three high level priorities over the course of, of, you know, six months or a year? 
it has changed and I'm, I'm happy with the change. I, I'm not very good at doing things day to day. You know, I, I don't have amazing work ethic. I don't have good discipline. I can't sit down and focus for many hours at a time. I, you know, I'm kind of just good at thinking and, and strategizing and what should be done. And I'm genuinely not that good at executing it. Uh, so to have people now in positions where they are far better than I was in those positions uh, feels good and right. And now the nature of the role is, is worrying about what's going to happen externally, but mostly worrying about internal. Uh, do people have what they need? Do they know what they need to do? Are they happy? Are they going to stick around? Are they happy with their interpersonal relationships inside the company? Does everyone know what we're trying to accomplish? So it's a lot of like worrying and then checking in on that worrying, like looking under the hood a little bit to see, hey, is this functioning properly? And every once in a while, uh, something will pop up where it's evident, ooh, this is, this is wrong or broken. And then, you know, I have to go into like action mode for a week or two to fix it. That, that's, that's what it feels like. Yeah, I've heard, I think it was a, a venture capitalist said that like with venture funded startups, which which you are not, to be clear, like you've raised a couple angel rounds, but have not taken institutional money. But um, a venture capitalist said like they view a CEO's priorities as three things. One is hiring, like hiring the high level folks, not every individual, you know, when you hit a certain scale, but making sure that basically the right people are getting on the bus keeping enough money in the bank so the company, you know, can make payroll. Yeah, the, the money in the bank thing, that's very clear. And and I I used to think that I'm relatively risk-loving in my personality, but what I have found in running this company and speaking to other founders is that I'm actually pretty conservative when it comes to the to the runway, to the cash on hand. So I know some people, you know, some people push it, they go 90 days, 60 days of cash, and I'm always 12 months. And I I am very uncomfortable with less than 12 months of money in the bank. And I think it's, uh, for me, one of the driving forces is like the mojo, for lack of a better term, like the happiness that's happening inside the company, how much people love their job, and that would get wrecked by layoffs. And so not only do I want to avoid laying someone off because that, that just sucks all around, especially if it's your fault, and then they have to pay the repercussions, but at the same time, I, I really, really want to avoid what that would do to the energy in the team. So I, I keep it. I keep it pretty conservative. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's more of a, a bit more of a bootstrapper mentality, and that's kind of how I've always viewed you as like a bootstrapper who happened to raise funding because he wanted to grow quickly and wanted to go into a space that was competitive. But still, your your ethos has always been that much much of the bootstrapper, the microconf ethos. Yes, that that's proving itself out. I remembered the third thing that the venture capitalist said. The reason I forgot it is because it's just so fundamental. It, it almost doesn't need to be stated, but it's setting the vision for the company and the direction, the high level stuff. And it's like, it's obvious, right? Yes, but it's surprisingly hard. You know, everyone tells you the advice is always repeat yourself a hundred times more than you think. Once you're sick of hearing yourself, that's about right. Like all those things about repetition. But it is, it is true that it is hard to keep everyone aligned on what you're thinking. And as the number of people grow, it becomes more and more challenging. So we at this point, anyone that gets hired, I talk about that vision in the interview. So they kind of know where we want to go and, and the right fit person gets excited by that vision as opposed to, whoa, this person's crazy. And then when someone joins and I do the first one-on-one -on -one with them a few, after, a few days after they join, I talk about the vision again, and I, I always offer like, I'll go to the whiteboard right now. And it's pretty much not their choice. I just end up on the whiteboard anyway. 
And then once a quarter, we also do it. Once a quarter, we talk about our roadmap and we go right back to the vision, right back to the core tenets. So it's it's becoming a lot of repetition and I it's it's still not enough. Super cool, man. Also, I wanted to come back to a comment you made earlier and you said that you aren't necessarily disciplined or get stuff done day to day. I question that reality. Now, maybe that's the reality now when you have this big team but back in the day when you were at 5k a month, I remember you were cold emailing, cold calling, doing sales calls. You were getting done. You know what I mean? So I wonder if it's just the situation you're in. You know what it is? It, it is the, the situation you're in. And I, I think I have some advantage in being a little older where I've gotten to know myself more over time. And so I'm able to fool myself or or force myself into action, right? So the cold email I would do, and then I would outsource as soon as possible. And then demo appointments would pop up on my calendar and it wouldn't be my choice whether or not to do them. It's just on my calendar. I'm doing it. And code, we call that a forcing function. You just force yourself to do it. That's funny. Yes. A lot of forced habits, a lot of like, well, even if I don't want to do this, I'm just going to commit to it anyway. Kind of like the first time you asked me to talk on stage at MicroConf. I was like, no, just answer yes, and then you'll be forced to do it. Then figure it out, right? Because I, I can't back out of it once I've told Rob yes. Exactly. That's uh, funny. Cool, man. Well, thanks, thanks again for coming on the show. You ready to dive into some listener questions? Yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can be helpful. It'll be good. So our first question is a voicemail about setting up developers who are taking deferred compensation. Hey, Mike and Rob, this is Chris Bowles. I'm calling from Kentucky, working on a new uh, SaaS concept involving the building industry. I'm early right now, but I've got three developers who have agreed to take deferred compensation and stock before we begin receiving revenue for their compensation. My question is, for these three developers, they're all in the U.S., is it best to set them up as an employee or as a contractor slash investor or as an employee who uh, is awarded shares? And do you recommend these developers have Class A or Class B shares with voting rights? I currently am a solo founder, but one of these developers could transition into a CTO. So what do you recommend for that? Thank you. So obviously, you and I are not lawyers. We can't give legal advice. I'm curious if you have a gut feel, if you were faced with this scenario, a gut feel of how you would approach it or even how you would find the right answer to this. Because it's it's not a clear-cut solution, at least from my perspective. It doesn't sound clear-cut, but it I think what happens often with business people like us is we we conjure up legal realities that are are wrong and then we start making assumptions based on that wrong belief and then we complicate everything i i think this requires like a reorientation and that is best with a conversation with a real lawyer i think a lot of the stuff is just kind of a little off base like voting rights like you don't need to talk about voting rights that's it's early for voting rights if you're the founder you don't want to talk about class A and class B shares. It's like it's way too early for a lot of this stuff. And I think a lawyer would help orient the person toward just getting things set up easily and cleanly. Same thing with like independent contractor versus employee. I think you would, you go independent contractor. Keep everything as simple as possible before it has to be complicated. It ends up complicated. So why why complicate it off the bat? Right. Why start there? Yeah, I think that's my take too. I mean, this this one does sound sufficiently 
complex that I, I really do think that that he should talk to a lawyer because I I just think you can e- so easily make a misstep with something like this. And I I agree the class A class B the voting I, it's doesn't it just doesn't seem like it's relevant yet. Right. I mean I know in 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 our company the only time that that came up is when investors come on board. And, and then that's that's still a question of whether or not you want to create a different class. Not all investors will force you to create a, a, a separate class. The, the separate classes is the thing to avoid because what that creates is a situation where investors have X voting rights and you have different voting rights. I mean, deferred compensation, not ideal, but you can understand how it happens if if the developers are saying, yes, I'm, I'm willing to work and you don't have the cash flow yet to pay me. And so let's defer it. But the second you touch employment, you're talking social security taxes, you're talking employment taxes, benefits, and so on. So independent contractor would keep that much cleaner. Right. As long as they fit the definition. I mean, the IRS has a definition of that. Like, you know, if you're managing them day to day and directing them exactly what to do and when and controlling their schedule, then they're not an independent contractor. And then, you know, you don't want to mess with that kind of stuff. But my guess is when you're this early stage, you could just give them a block of work and say, here's the deliverable, here's the deadline, and they can get it to you. I mean, the the fact that you have multiple developers working on it, I, I feel like that's, it might be easy to actually make that a reality. Hope that was helpful, Chris. Not sure if it was, but if I were in your shoes and you don't have a lawyer, I would head to upcounsel.com and just have a 30-minute consult with someone I think could be helpful. Our next question comes from Marcelo Erthal, and he says, hey guys, I'm a digital entrepreneur and a big fan of your show. I'm in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. We have a web app for the B2B market where we need to contact a specific person in the enterprise that we are prospecting. So I'm assuming that means like a specific title. We found LinkedIn a great tool for this kind of job. The problem is that when one of my sales guys leaves, he leaves with all the contacts and connections in the space, forcing the new person to start over again from scratch. Do you have an opinion on this? Should I have a LinkedIn profile owned by the company? What do you think about this? I've never even considered that, but it's it sounds like a reasonable problem. Yeah, you need to my default was, oh, just do it under your own account. But maybe, you know, you're trying to connect with someone. You're trying to have one of your salespeople connect with them directly and then have a conversation. It, it, would, it would be pretty awkward to switch in the middle. What, what do you do about this? It's a tough one. I feel like my gut is that the company account is going to just be so impersonal. You know, when you get contacted by a company account, unless there's a net, like a human being attached to it with a headshot, it's just a logo contacting you gets no response. So I don't feel like that's that's really a good answer. I was going to say LinkedIn itself, I, I don't know. It, it's impressive that they're making it work. Yeah, that they're making sales on LinkedIn. Yes, yes. LinkedIn is, is, is tough. Maybe for enterprise, it's different. I can't help but wonder if you could start the prospecting on LinkedIn, but then basically bring them in to a CRM, essentially, or bring them into somewhere where when, when the salesperson leaves that they don't have all the connections. I kind of think of it like the hub and spoke model of social media, where you have your Twitter account, your Instagram, your Pinterest, whatever, but you're really trying to get them on your email list because your email list is the core thing that you own and everything else, you're just a digital sharecropper, right? You're just Twitter, Facebook, whatever. They can ban you at any time. You don't really own those followers the way you do with an email list. And I wonder if he couldn't approach it the same way where you are using LinkedIn as a channel, but it's just the spoke. And you're actually trying to get them into either a conversation with your team or you're trying to get 
you know, their email address or you're getting them into a CRM where you then have data about the interactions and all that. And then, I mean, that's what the big companies do, right? They certainly don't have, even if they have people prospecting on, on LinkedIn or cold calling or whatever, the relationship is documented in a CRM somewhere so that when that salesperson leaves, they don't, they don't take everything with them. Yes, I think the the personal connection and conversations that have been had on LinkedIn, that sounds like you're going to lose. But if you get them into a CRM, then then the company actually has that asset and that value. So if you want to do that as early as possible in the LinkedIn process, my guess is a lot of CRMs these days have direct integrations with LinkedIn. If you think about something like SalesLoft, they're deeply integrated with LinkedIn. And that's that's how I would approach it. So it's not really a prospect. It's not really a lead until they're in your CRM. And unless your sales cycles are really long, you know, there shouldn't be so many hanging relationships at any given time, right? You have people who have become customers, you have people that you're reaching out to, and then you have people who I guess didn't become customers, but then you have that in between. And there's only so many in that in between for now, right? That the, well, I may buy in the next month or two. And so I feel like keeping that number small is is probably the way to go. Thanks for the question, Marcelo. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is a voicemail about how to balance time between new features and refactoring and fixing bugs. Hey guys, thanks very much for the show. Really enjoying it just now. Um, I'm Colin Gray. I run a podcasting company in uh, Scotland, uh, thepodcasthost.com. So we help people start podcasts. But we also created a SaaS product last year called Alitu, which helps people to produce podcasts. It does a lot of the automation for them. And the thing I'm struggling with is we've been running for a year now. I have a team of four developers, two full-time, two part-time, and I'm struggling to figure out how we should be balancing our time between brand new features and fixing bugs, maintenance, refactoring, that type of stuff. So I'd be really interested to hear what you guys think around how you balance the new development work with the reliability work, because we still get bugs. We still get people that get in touch. It's not very many. So we must be in the less than sort of 2% area by now in terms of reliability. But what do you think is reliability to aim for in terms of support tickets, bugs, that kind of stuff? And how much time should you be spending on that versus new features? Thanks very much. I like this question. And thanks for sending that over, Colin. I think it's a pretty common thing that a first-time founder, you wouldn't even think about this before starting an app, but at a certain point, you have to. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Jordan. Yeah, this is this is the ongoing struggle between making progress on the roadmap and how much how much time in each sprint to give to fixes and how much should you have a few sprints in a row that are just features and then a sprint entirely devoted to bug fixes. Everyone has a different way of doing this. A lot of it ends up on gut feel on on where your customers are and what you need to be doing. Generally speaking, I have a, a few thoughts on it. The thing I like to keep in mind is to make sure we never go too long without giving customers new features. So yes, we have our own issues internally and we're, what we're thinking about, but we need to keep the momentum going. Momentum in the product, momentum in sales, momentum in all the different things, and pushing out new features keeps that momentum going. From some of the detail that Colin talked about, they're a year in, which tells me, yes, it's starting to pile up and you're starting to deal with things that are popping back up, but 
it's still relatively early on. I assume the code base isn't isn't a hot mess the way it, it gets into it after a few years. The other thing he said was that they get a few support tickets here and there. It sounded from the words he was using and the tone of his voice that it's pretty minimal. I would say that the the tolerance for bugs is a big issue. Uh, I know our product is a checkout product, so the tolerance is extremely low. If if we have bugs, it costs people money. So our tolerance is very low. Uh, so depending on the type of bugs and the type of customers, those bugs might be annoying or might be absolute deal breakers. And so I think that helps guide you on how far to push it, on how hot to let the fire get before you start throwing water on it. I would lean more toward new features even at the discomfort of, you know, the shame and embarrassment of people getting in touch with things that are broken. That's my general take on it. Sounds like he's in a pretty good spot. It's an ongoing struggle to figure out, but I would lean toward being a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit embarrassed. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty good advice. I kind of categorize these in my head into two buckets where it's like there's user impacting or customer impacting bugs or cruft or there's UI cruft that may not be a bug, but it's all stuff that is maintenance, like bugs plus an old looking interface plus a clunky interface you know needs to kind of be revamped that impacts the users and that they notice it. So that's one bucket. And the other one is the cruft bugs and other stuff that users don't notice, but are a pain in the ass for your dev team. It's stuff that needs to be refactored, or it's that one, the alert that dumps too much information every, you know, once every few weeks, it just floods the Slack channel or floods your error logs with something. And it's kind of a one-off thing and users don't know it, but you know that it's it's getting on the, the dev nerves. And what we did in the early days, so I agree with you on, you are going to want to <laughs> probably l- let some of these go longer than you want to, but... I would encourage that you let your developers give them some leeway to fix the things that are bugging them. What we did in the early days when it was just, you're just shooting from the hip all the time and it's like, hey, what's the next feature we should work on? You know, we were literally planning one feature out and we were doing that. I mean, we had three developers full time. We were probably doing 50K MRR and we were still doing that approach. It was super agile and we could make decisions very quickly and respond to customer needs. At that point, we would often say, Let's just look in the stack, and if there's stuff that we think is bothering people or it's bothering devs, just pull the next one off, spend a day, fix it, and then we all felt kind of good about ourselves, you know, and like, ah, we got that done. And then went back to features. And then another few weeks later, we'd be like, you know, we haven't really attacked something like that in a while, and and we'd, we'd go back to it. When we started formalizing it as the team got bigger, I mean, by the time we had eight or 10 developers, that's when we started saying one morning a week, which winds up being about 10% of your time, right? Because it's about three or four hours. One morning a week, everyone would pull one thing out of the, the queue, whether it was user-facing, because a lot of the designers would do user-facing stuff and a lot of the devs would do the, the cruft that they wanted to refactor. And it's like you basically have one morning to pick something and fix it. And that became a cool cadence and people actually... It sounds like it would be drudgery, but they actually really like it because it makes their lives better and makes their lives easier. And I always felt like there's some number between 10 and 20%. 20% is a full day. And that felt like too much to give up every week to just fixing this stuff. The code base would have been immaculate, you know, but as you said, it like negatively impacts your feature velocity. And so that's, I think that's kind of how we've approached it. 
Yeah, I, I like that. It does end up being seen and felt as a little break. And, and we've had we've had entire weeks where we go by, and it's almost it's almost a break. It's we've been pushing really hard on the sprint. We just went six weeks straight, all out. The end of it was stressful. Everything went to QA at the same time, like it shouldn't, and then everything got out the door. And and a week of refactoring and going back and polishing th- things up is is almost a little bit of a yeah, it's a breather. The thing that we've had to watch out for is that some engineers have a tendency to refactor as they go. And so they'll be in a part of the code base working on a feature and they'll be touching an adjacent part of the code and it won't be up to snuff compared to what they're building now, right? It has some logic in it that we thought was right 12 months ago. And then the tendency to want to refactor that before coming back to the feature that you're working on is dangerous. That's how things kind of start floating and and not being on time. Uh, So we definitely have had to figure out the engineer personalities and help guide people away from too much refactoring. Yeah, I agree. It's, it really is good to know, like with anything, it's good to know the personalities of the people you're working with and know if they err on the side of, some people err on the side of being much more like, hey, I'm just a hacker, I'm going to throw stuff in. And then you really you know that they need heavy code review to, to bulletproof their code. And then other people take a really long time to build their stuff, but it is super bulletproof. And you often have to encourage them to maybe go a little faster and have a, let's have a little bit of risk in this, you know, to get it done 20, 30% faster. So I hope that was helpful, Colin. Our next question is a, is a bit of a long one. It's from Dragos. He says, hey guys, first of all, I want to thank you for doing the podcast and giving your thoughts on so many entrepreneurial things. Reading to you about my startup that started as a dream and ended as a lack of motivation and a desire to sell it. More than a year ago, I started working on an idea where I would change the way people build WordPress sites, making it easier and smoother. It began as my problem because every time I had to create a WordPress site, I had to search for a theme, buy it, do a bunch of other stuff. So even if I was a developer, I didn't have the knowledge of the technology required to build the app, nor the cash needed to make an MVP. So I borrowed money from my sister and I hired a small agency from Eastern Europe. Seven months later... I had a rough MVP. Wow, seven months. That's that's a long time. A theme builder that allows people to create one-page WordPress sites in just a few minutes. During the development, I tried to create anticipation and managed to build a list of around 200 people. The problem is that post-launch, I only got one customer. Since then, I've had a few thousand visitors, but I have not had any new customers. I blame the execution, the fact that I did not know who my customers are and I don't know what to do next. I'm in a position where I do not have the technical knowledge, which is AngularJS, to continue the project. I don't have the motivation. I don't believe in the idea like I did in the beginning, and I'm afraid to invest any other money. It's easy to quit, as I have tons of other ideas, but should I persevere on the initial plan? How do I decide when to do that, when to stop, and just consider the startup a failure? What do you think, sir? This is a tough one. It Sounded like it was going to be a tough one, but then when you get to his tone toward the end, you start to realize this is just a failure. There's nothing wrong with that. It's time to move on. That That's my gut feeling after hearing this. The amount of energy and potent, probably money also to turn this from where it is right now into something that works and turns out to be a success, I don't think it sounds like it's worth it. it doesn't It doesn't sound like he has the motivation and drive to do it. Yeah, I would just chalk it up to a, a lesson and, and move on. I think I would agree with you. It's funny when I said this is a tough one, I I almost, I didn't mean it was a tough decision, but it, that's how it sounded. But it's like, it's a tough 
email to read because I've been there. Like we've all been there and it's hard. What makes it tough is that pretty much everybody listening to this, including you and I, have been in this exact same situation. And and it's it's tough when you're in it. Uh, but it is one of those things that people from the outside that have a bit colder approach to it just look at it and say, I've been there too. There's no shame in it. It's just one of those things you should just move on from. It didn't work. Yeah, I think if if he had the motivation, that's the thing for me, right? Is when you're a bootstrapper and doing stuff on the side, you never run out of money, right? Like running out of money is what kills venture-backed startups because they burn through the cash and they shut down. But when you're doing something on the side, I guess his since he's not a developer, I guess he has run out of funding that he wants to put into it. But realistically, if he was super motivated to do it, he could learn Angular himself, or he could take some of the money he's making at his day job and invest it in if he had the motivation and really thought it was going to work. But when you don't have the motivation or the desire, it doesn't matter. That's what kills bootstrappers, you know, or kills their startups, I should say, is you just kind of get fed up with it at a certain point. You don't believe in it anymore. And if you still believed it was going to work, you could totally try to do, make a verticalized version of this of like, I'm going to make this for pet groomers or for designers or for whoever, just pick, you know, pick a niche and you could try to go after it. But it doesn't sound like that's that interesting, you know, and he, and he wants to move on to the next thing. So it's that, it's that hard balance of like, I feel like it does come back to knowing yourself. Like, do you tend to just skip from one thing to the next to the next, in which case you should stick with things longer than you normally do. But if you are someone who tends to just grind it out and spend two, three, four years working on things that then fail, well, maybe you should move on quicker from things in the future. And it sounds like, given that it took seven months to get that MVP, which is kind of brutal, and that he, you know, has had thousands of visitors, I, it's just a, this is a real tough one to turn around. Yes, it's almost a blessing in disguise that it got so little reception. The really dangerous ones are that get just enough reception to keep you motivated to keep going, but will probably not lead you to where you want to go. Yeah, they take years and years to get to 5K MRR or 10K MRR or whatever, right? Yes, and then say, oh man, I should just stop. And, and then that, that sunk cost is even more painful, right? It's never seen as a sunk cost. It's been, it's, it's always looked back at, well, I'm two years in. Should I really stop at this point or should I keep going? Yeah, cool. Uh, our last question for the day comes from Robert and he says, so many products fail, but when does fail early not apply? It's not like fail early can be a universal practice because almost everything seems to fail anyway. None of the advice that seems reasonable seems to work. Without getting hung up and never shipping, when is it a good idea to spend extra time getting it right from the get-go? And have you ever seen someone fail because the MVP was shoddy only to see something similar succeed with a higher quality MVP and a more thorough team. Likewise, have you seen a really thorough product with thorough marketing and industry-experienced co-founders fail miserably? There's a lot of questions in here. Yes, but it it sounds like he's he's searching for, you know, what is it that makes things successful and other things fail? And that is so intangible. There's so many factors there, right? That that mystery has no no solution. Everyone has seen these things. Great team, great product, great everything, total failure. And the opposite of, you know, someone doesn't know what they're doing and get lucky or it looks like lucky and have spectacular success. So I, I don't know if you can expect to find that that intangible thing that makes something successful while others aren't. It's tough to define. I agree. And I think some 
you know, some parts of his question of his letter, his email, he said, like, so many products fail. When does fail early not apply? Or what, he's talking about, like, building an MVP that's thorough versus not. I think back to last episode where Laura Roeder was talking about launching a competitor to PagerDuty. And that's where you kind of can't build a shoddy MVP. I think another one is, like, to compete against MailChimp, right? Like what we did with Drip. You know, you're building an ESP. You kind of can't have a shoddy MVP and get that done. Now, you could you can go circuitous and you could build an add-on to things and then slowly branch in. But I think I think what I'm getting to is like mature markets where there's a lot of competitors who are have mature products. That's where just an early MVP that doesn't have a huge differentiation is very unlikely to get traction. But if you're entering a new market where, you know, I think of Josh with Bear Metrics years ago, right, where he was first to market with this one-click analytics or I think of even like Peldi with Balsamic, where he was like the first one to really build this mock-up tool in the way that he did it. You could build a pretty basic version because no one else was doing it. And that basic version was good enough. And people would put up with either bugs or just a lack of features because it was a novel new thing and you really couldn't get it anywhere else. It's like it requires practice to, to get a sense of whether or not something's on the right track. Because I, I hear you on the MVP, but... I think the the MVP is internal facing. Like this is, we know that this isn't quite good enough, but we're just getting it out there. But the reaction from the market, that external piece, is is what tells you whether or not you're on the right track and should keep going or should stop. And so, even I mean, our our checkout was an MVP when we launched it, and it effectively tortured people, and then they would cancel. But not before the torture. They went through some torture first. But the reaction from the market was so strong that we knew we were on the right track. So we couldn't have a shoddy MVP in a checkout product, but we did. But the reaction was so strong that we said, okay, we're just going to have to bite the bullet here for six months and rebuild this thing again, but we know we're on the right track. So yeah, uh, MVP is one thing, but the market is the other. And then beyond that, the, it takes some practice. It reminds me of, uh, I went to see Jason Fried talk in New York. It's like a good 10 years ago, right? So Basecamp was kind of like the hottest thing ever then. I went to go see him talk. And at the end of the conversation, I asked him effectively something to the effect of, why are you guys like so good at this? Like, why are you guys, why is this product making money when, when others aren't? And his re response was that they effectively have more practice making money. <laughs> so the more practice they get, the better they get at it. And so the sense of whether or not a product is working or if the MVP is good enough or if the market is responding properly I think that stuff just takes practice. So thanks for the question, Robert. I uh, hope that was helpful. I realize it depends is not always the answer we want to hear, but some of these are uh, just difficult to, uh, to answer. So thanks again for coming on the show today, man. Rob, thank you. Appreciate it. It's great having you. If people want to catch up with you every week or two, they can go to bootstrappedweb.com, which is where your podcast lives. Every week or two. That's very kind of you. Thank you like you. that? <laughs> that's, you, you ship a, two or three episodes a month, right? Yes. It's the, the summer that throws us off with all the travel. Brian's out there in the world, but we got big plans to come back strong in the fall. And I've taken real effort in 2019 to be more open. Yeah, it's turned into into the low light podcast, and and those are the only, those are my favorite business podcasts these days. the The super successful stories are sure it's entertaining, but the value is when someone like your last episode with Laura Roder, that's it right there, man. Yeah, it's the struggles, right? The struggle, especially when you come across someone like Laura, where she's ridiculously good at what she does, and 
you get the sense that everything she does works. And then you have a, you know, a podcast episode like that, and it helps you identify everyone struggles. And it's, it's always just helpful to hear someone in her shoes uh, be open about it. There was one line in my microconf talk this year that, that I keep coming back to, and it's, there are no Cinderella stories. Like we, you can look at any startup. She got to seven figures in a year. Like that's crazy. But you know that under the covers, that was probably very hard to manage. And really the, the, the things that we see from the outside that just look amazing. And it's like, I wish um, my company was doing that. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Yeah, I think uh, that line in your talk sparked a lot of conversations in microconf that went somewhere to the effect of if you're jealous or envious of someone's situation just go ask them about it and as soon as they start talking you'll realize oh okay it's not it's not that amazing it's nothing that you should be that envious about as soon as you actually get the details you realize how hard it is right yeah the growth might be envious but the challenges are not and if you have a question you'd like to hear us answer on the show, call our voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. You can obviously attach an MP3 or a WAV file to that email. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes or any podcatcher of your choice by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.